Hello, and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, everyone. My name is Elizabeth Roma. I'm a member of the APRA Online Content Committee, and I'm here today with Catherine Scott and Jason Briggs to talk about privacy from an international perspective and how it relates to the donor data that we all work with every day. So before we get started, I'd love to ask each of you to introduce yourselves and share a little about your background so that our audience can understand the perspective you're bringing to this conversation today. Catherine, can we start with you? Thanks, Elizabeth. Hello, everyone. I'm Catherine Scott. I'm based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I work at the Toronto Metropolitan University as a prospect development officer, and I'm also president of the APRA Canada chapter. I've been working in prospect development for about 12 years, and I have a background in international development and library science. Thanks, Elizabeth. Yeah, thank you. Jason, over to you. Hi, so my name is uh, Jason Briggs, and um, I've also been in prospect research, prospect development for about 12 years. Um, I was uh, head of research and insights at um, the University of Sheffield in the UK for five years. And from there, I've gone on to join a consultancy firm, BWF, uh, and help in partnership. But I also run an organization called Pyro Talks, which is all about making business and financial information more accessible for the not-for-profit sector. So uh, we cover lots of uh, topics on this area. That's great. Well, we're so happy to have both of you here today for this conversation. Um, Before we jump in, I just want to be clear that we are not attorneys, and today's conversation is simply meant to be an exchange of ideas and experiences that we hope will spark conversation and thought as you all consider issues around data and privacy at your own organizations. So the information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Again, we're just sharing our opinions and please, please consult with your own legal team before implementing any policies around privacy and data at your organization. So that said, let's jump in. Um, Jason, you are joining us from the UK. Again, just to remind everyone, Catherine, you're joining us from Canada. It would be great if we could start by just having each of you share kind of a broad overview of what the regulatory framework looks like in your countries as related to privacy and data protection. And if there are any specific pieces, I know we have all heard a lot about GDPR, for example, in the UK. So any specific pieces of legislation that you think people listening should know about? And Jason, let's start with you. Yeah, so in the UK, we have uh, what we could now call UK GDPR. So um we left uh, the EU in, uh, you know, in uh, a lot of controversial events, but we did leave in the end. And so what they've done is uh, essentially copied all, over all the EU law and just basically called it UK GDPR. But GDPR is still extremely similar um, also across all of Europe. So a lot of what I talk about will, uh, I think, be very applicable there too. Uh, but just to give a bit of an overview of, of how it works. So um, GDPR is... Uh, essentially asking us to become much more data considerate uh, with how we handle data and uh, a lot more transparent, also giving the user um, a lot more control over their data. Um, I'll just kind of quickly explain what they ask teams to do. Um, If if you don't know, they ask teams to do what they call a data protection impact assessment these days or like a thorough data audit. Um, And we've got to do a test for every single piece of personal data that we hold. 
Um, and then we've got to decide the lawful basis on which we can uh, we can do this data or process. And I'll just give you some examples of what those lawful bases are. Um, so it's consent, which is essentially is opt-in, and this is seen as kind of like the, the prime uh, um, option. If we, if we choose this, it's seen as the best option for data subjects, in the words, people. Uh, just list some others, contract, le legal obligation, vital interest, so, you know, sec uh, securing someone's life, public tasks or public organisations. But really what I want to get to, which I think is important to, uh, which we'll go into today, is legitimate interest. So essentially this is doing what you want to do based on some kind of legitimate interest, uh, but you usually give the person the ability to opt out. And that's kind of where, where we're up to. You've got to balance this assessment towards uh, individual rights. You've got to then write this out in a thorough document and publicize it as a privacy policy um, so everyone can access that. It's got to be uh, um, very readily available and understandable. Um, but just as a bit of background into how this kind of entered into the research sector, you know, it entered with quite, quite a storm, really. And uh, many people thought prospect research was over. And uh, the way they were talking, it, it felt like that, you know, it felt like that that was going to happen. And so in the UK, we have the Information Commission's office and they had to interpret GDPR and speak it to speak it to us. Um, and they had a lot of uh, kind of interaction with the not-for-profit sector. And there was lots of kind of salacious news articles. And so what happened, interestingly, was lots of organizations, or a number of key ones, deleted all uh, their data, really. Well, a huge portion of their data. And they sent out emails asking people to opt in. If they didn't get a response from the donors, they just deleted that data too. And it caused a lot of disgruntlement for donors. They would write in, why are you not communicating with me anymore? And they said, oh, well, you didn't opt in. And they said, well, why should I? I've been donating to you for the past 20 years. And it caused a lot of harm. And one key organization where this happened was the Royal National Lifeboat Institute. They lost a lot of donors. They started to see their income drop because they weren't able to do kind of, in a way, normal research or normal research tasks. And I think that's a really important point to take home about how valuable uh, we are, really. And so in the end, uh, the Royal National Lifeboat Institute, their director stood up and said, publicly, we have re renounced uh, the opt-in approach. And we've now gone for legitimate interest. Um, uh, so uh, this is based on reasonable expectation. So I just thought to share that how kind of uh, big public news it became, you know, so much so that people had to announce uh, what path they were taking now when it comes to data protection. Yeah, that's really interesting. I remember um, just reading a lot about when GDPR first came out and from the US, it, it was really interesting and it did feel very stark, right? And like, oh no, this this really ties our hands as researchers. So I think that perspective that it actually kind of came around in the end to show the value that that research brings and even that donors have that appreciation for knowing you know, that, that we are being conscious and mindful of that data on our end. I think that's really interesting. Um, Catherine, tell us about some of how, how this plays out for your work in Canada. Thanks, Elizabeth. And Jason mentioned the GDPR making international headlines. It certainly made its way here. It generated a lot of discussion, but we don't have anything exactly like this yet. It could change. We know that there are different demands um, in among the public. But here we have um, different levels of uh, legislation based on our different levels of government. Like the US, we are a federated uh, government system. So 
legislation will apply to provincial jurisdictions as well as federal jurisdictions. This will vary again, uh, depending on your organization, if you uh, are an organization that is registered provincially or federally or receiving different kinds of funds, um, you may be subject to different information, uh, information requirements. With that in mind, there are some key pieces of legislation that uh, legislation that I think will be of interest, particular to our American listeners. Uh, for example, in Ontario, um, we have privacy legislation related to healthcare. Healthcare is provincially regulated, and each province will have their own legislation. So, in Ontario, where I live, this is called FIPA, the Personal Health Information and Privacy Protection Act. This protects patient information when they're receiving healthcare. And it will impact the ability of healthcare fundraising organizations to access information about uh, patients in the Grateful Patient Program. So uh, we have different kinds of conventions uh, across healthcare organizations, but uh, to our American listeners, you might be surprised at how protected that information is compared to maybe some of your experiences. At the federal level, citizens are protected under the Access to Information Act, which covers the federal government's collection, retention, use, and disclosure of their personal information, as well as citizens' rights to access information through freedom of information requests. Um, there is another piece of legislation called PIPIDA. It is the Personal Information Protection and Electronics Document Act. This provides protection from Canadian data being stored or transmitted through international servers. So there was um, several years ago, uh, quite a lot of concern during the advent of cloud computing that our information could be stored on American servers in particular, since we are just your next door neighbors. Um, so if anyone wants to learn more about that, there is a concept of Canadian data residency. Um, and there are a number of well-written articles about that, that essentially um, this concept is what informs PIPIDA, the legislation, the legislative framework, which ensures that our data, if it's transmitted uh, through, uh, say, a cloud-based server that is actually um, based in another country, our information can be protected. That being said, I find the um, there are few examples uh, of how this actually works uh, effectively for charities. I still find that this is an area that is relatively new, so I anticipate we'll see some more um, examples as we move forward. And, you know, depending on um, what's going on in the world, frankly, sometimes people will become more concerned if they see an extreme situation play out and then the public demands to have um, you know, changes to protection or enforcement of protection of privacy acts. Uh, but those are currently the, um, the broad pieces of legislation that uh, inform privacy in Canada for Canadian citizens. So I'm curious, knowing that laws vary from country to country and that within those laws, there are specific protections that are different. Are there specific data points you can think of that are unavailable to researchers as they're evaluating prospects in Canada or in the UK or in other, are there other countries you would point to that you've come across in your own work? Yeah, briefly, I would say that health information and private, private company information can be particularly difficult to access in Canada. Um, there are some efforts out there to require additional disclosure of private company information. 
Um, so that would be uh, shareholder information. People hold shares in private companies. It again varies by province. Uh, corporations can be registered federally or provincially or both, and will be subjected to varying levels of information disclosure requirements depending on that jurisdiction. It's difficult to follow and understand, um, but I found that blogs from corporate law firms have been actually very helpful in explaining the current regulatory environment and any um, changes in the, shall we say, court of public opinion regarding disclosure of information. Again, often public opinion is driven by situations in the news, but the corporate law firms uh, tend to maintain pretty good blogs that uh, explain these changes or um, anticipated changes in a relatively accessible manner. That's such a great tip. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a good one. I've not thought of that myself. And that's that's a really good one. Thanks. Um, I mean, I mean, I would add, you know, I think it's I think a long time when prospect research started to grow in the UK, because I, I you know, I think it started in the US first. Many of us thought that the US had had it lucky, basically. And I think uh, there was a great article about, done by someone I know called Toby Savin, um, and it was published on the Helen Brown Group uh, blog, I think. And uh, he really opened up the idea that this isn't actually true. Um, uh, and actually, the UK has it really good. Um, but yeah, we find it kind of fascinating that you're able to get, I think you get named details, don't you, by real estate. Um, and um, th that's that's just a, an amazing thought to us uh, in the UK. Uh, but what we do have in the UK is Companies House. Um, and that is every single uh, private company and public company that operates in the UK. And you can type in the name and you get it and you can actually get directly unless they've got a political reason not to be shown you can get the level of ownership for every single company in the uk and they, they have to publish at least what they call a, a, a we know as a, a balance sheet and um and so you can get some minimal financials and get a lens on every single company um, and if they're bigger companies they've got to report more and so you get even better insights um, so it's uh, yeah, we, we're actually we're actually we're actually very lucky in that regard. So um, yeah, if people don't know about it, then Companies House is the way to go. Um, and I think like from having reflected all this and on our conversations, well, my my feeling is that a lot of the major give well comes from private companies. Where when we look at where the top donations come from, uh, and we looked at this, the top fifty donations in the US, seventy six percent of them were coming from company owners. Uh, so people that have built their wealth up in a company. Um, and I think it's interesting that the data laws, therefore, could be affecting prospect research. And there's probably an over-reliance on property um, and therefore, which has little correlation in the end to transformative major give well. So I just think it's interesting that this interplay of data privacy laws can really affect um, how we can perform um, uh, research and, and the kind of prospects we reach out to in the end. Um, so, yeah, I just think that's interesting to uh, to think about. That is really interesting. And I think you're right that at least in the US, the conventional wisdom is sort of like, oh, we have it. It's so much easier to do prospect research on individuals in the US because there's a lot more transparency into their assets. Right. But I think you make a great point, Jason, that it's what asset, you know, there's transparency into what kinds of assets. And it's true. We see a lot about real estate, but the the information that's available to us about private companies is very, very limited. So yeah. I think this is a good reminder for those of us who 
are researching individuals in different countries that a lot of it is about just knowing within that specific country what is available to you and what isn't and and recognizing that you might have to take a slightly different approach depending on where your prospect is located. Yeah, and I think ultimately it went, and it's very similar, US, Canada, whatever, the access to private conversation, very similar out rest of the world. It's pretty much the only degree of the UK that does this, strangely. Uh, but I think at that point, we have to kind of rely on analytics in a way. And uh, But yeah, it's just uh, really interesting. Yeah. And Jason, you make such a good point about um, sort of the over-reliance on property information as a wealth indicator. That is certainly the case in particularly many cities in Canada where uh, real estate uh, wealth has been known to be overinflated. And your access to real estate information, again, will vary based on your municipality. Uh, I know that in Toronto as a homeowner, I can access a certain um, records through the city because uh, I can look at comparables in my neighborhood. But as a member of the public, it's a different matter. Uh, whereas there are other municipal municipalities where access is a lot easier. That being said, um, if you're in a municipality or a city where real estate is overvalued, it's not really an appropriate indicator of your wealth. Um, private company information is generally a, uh, a really good indicator, you know, beyond past giving. And we do have some, some information available, but not to the degree that Companies House offers. And I know I've relied it, uh, on Companies House even for Canadian prospects to find out more information about them. Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good point. So I'm going to shift us a little bit. I'm I'm curious what the two of you would point to as some of the risks that organizations face relating to donor privacy and data security. Yeah, so in I guess you know we could uh, we could reel off uh, quite a long list, couldn't we? Um, but I'm just talking from personal experience here, uh, from something that that I was uh, involved with and. Um, you know, I think what happened with GDPR when it first started to hit the UK and the interpretation of it, there was a lot of kind of almost like purist uh, approach to how they interpret data privacy law. And, you know, many organizations stopped doing quite valid practices. Uh, in some cases, they even stopped doing due diligence, you know, and uh, because that was seen as intrusive uh, and not necessarily proportionate, depending on uh, why you intended to do, say, due diligence research. Uh, but I was involved with a university at some point and uh, we had done some research for some honorary degrees um, and, the, you know, so that's giving people public recognition. Uh, and there was a particular individual um, that we had done research on and they were in another country where they were senior in law. And uh, unfortunately, they had actually uh, put someone, uh, uh, been involved with, you know, a panel that put someone to death for uh, their sexual persuasion and... Um, and in the end, um, we did the research on that and it went to the, the highest high levels of university. It was taken out immediately. You know, as soon as it was seen, it was taken out immediately, obviously. Um, and uh, that was a really powerful moment for me because um, had we not done that, you know, it's it's likely that this person would have got uh, the accolade put on stage and, and so forth. And, um, you know, it could have caused a huge reputational damage uh, in terms of student uh, protests or whatever. Um, so that was just a real powerful moment for me to remind me of how important it is um, to be allowed to do research and not to be 
uh, extreme in how we interpret data law. And we, there are some things we just have to do uh, for the benefit of our donors and the benefits of our organi organizations. And again, yeah, it just opens up the power of research. And I always like to tell that story when people are like, oh, we don't really do, do due diligence, you know. And uh, so I, I like to tell that story because it stayed with me. Yeah, I think it's really helpful because it can it can all feel sometimes a little academic and it can be kind of a dry topic when you're hashing out, you know, your organizational policy or whatever. But I think that's a great reminder that, you know, this is something that has a real impact on what our organizations are are doing in the world. And so it it is it is important and it's important not to get lost in the abstraction of it. Yeah, it, it really is. It's, you know, exactly. And uh, yeah, it's, it just shows the value. That, going back to your earlier point, the whole GDPR experience really did crystallize the power of research. And uh, I've got some interesting stats on that that I'd, I'd like to share at some point uh, later on. Yeah, that's great. Um, Catherine, before we move to our next question, are there examples you would give of where you personally or you know other colleagues you've talked to have have thought about risks associated with data and privacy? Yeah, certainly. In um, some recent uh, examples and places I've worked, we've uh, engaged in you know well screening or database transitions, and that means selecting a vendor which means sending your organization's data outside of your organization, which has inherent risks. So when we talk about due diligence, I think you know the importance of good due diligence research goes from the individual level to you know, potentially avoiding um, a very serious issue with uh, one individual to you know, thinking about our data more broadly. And um, you know, when we you know, are moving towards a new vendor, I think, of, you know, even some of our most trusted vendors, uh, you know, are prone to ransomware attacks, you know, the Blackbot was uh, um, experienced a ransomware attack and was mostly able to resolve it. But it does still lead to um, uh, risks to identifiable personal information that comes from our organization. And I think that the best approach um, in my experience is that we do have to anticipate that there will be cybersecurity threats and risks, regardless of the vendor that we are partnering with. Um, and you know, if you're a Canadian organization and your your vendor may be um, you know, storing your information outside of your borders. We talked about uh, PIPIDA as a piece of legislation that protects Canadian data, but we still have to work with the assumption that uh, all data is at risk. It's a highly valuable commodity and subject to ransomware attacks. So doing our best to select our vendors carefully remains important. Uh, we will acknowledge that there's always a risk. And that process for due diligence for selecting vendor, you know, it includes asking questions about their cybersecurity, data management practices, and having that recorded so that we, we know that we did our best before we, uh, we sent our data. Um, abroad. And you know, we have to accept that as nonprofit organizations, we do face a high level of scrutiny um, for protecting our donors' data, even though we don't always have the ability or capacity to um, invest in cybersecurity resources to the degree that maybe we would like. So uh, the due diligence uh, risk factors um, are, are important to identify, and we have to think of them not just regarding donors or reputational risk to our organization, but also when working with external partners. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important reminder. Can either of you think of ways that 
your approach to researching potential donors or maybe to managing data internally has changed in response to some of the new protections that you've seen? Sure. For me, um, you know, ever since I've been a researcher, I've worked with an eye towards donors at any time and prospects anytime, being able to um, request they see that the the information we have available uh, on them. So as researchers, we're collecting information from publicly available sources, but we are interpreting those through the lens of information we have in our database to generate intelligence on our donors and prospective donors. And so when we write and collect this information, um, we need to make sure that we are doing it in a way that um, is, uh, is subject to uh, a, an information request from anyone who is the subject of that writing. So I think that's uh, that's a, a nice way to operate in general. It, um, it uh, keeps our writing professional and you know organizations will have different capacity levels to um, manage their data. But I think that you know it highlights the role of the prospect development professional and the prospect researcher to have a, a information privacy and security perspective on um, all donor information so you know that comes from uh, that means everything from um writing information in a tactful way to making sure that the information is shared and um managed in you know a confidential way and I think that that makes us um, critical, even more critical parts of our, our team. Yeah, I agree. It reminds me of, you know, back in the early days of my career when we had paper files on people. And that was kind of like one of the tests that we would use was if the donor walked in here tomorrow and asked to see their file, would we be comfortable with everything in it? So we're not talking about paper files anymore, but I think that's such a, a good principle to remind people of that it's, you know, as important, if not more important than ever. I will say that uh, prospect researchers had a good chuckle when we had a brief political scandal several years ago with a, a senior minister leaving some files in a bar. Um, and we thought, well, what if what if one of our confidential donor profiles was left in a bar? Would we be comfortable with people seeing them? I have heard of a couple of instances where um, board members have asked to see their profiles and actually really enjoyed uh, reading the information that we collected on them. Yeah, and and this the stat that I mentioned earlier. Um, so when GDPR was coming to the UK, the Institute of Fundraising did some research to try and prove why research was valuable and that people expected to be researched because they were arguing that people didn't expect to be researched. And actually what they found was 78% of donors, or was it major donors, said that they that being researched was uh, the best advancement in not-for-profits in the last five years or something like that. Um, and in fact, some people found it, I think the major donors, uh, found it to be uh, expecting if they had not done the research before they sat in front of them, it was seen as rude. You know, it was seen as a, a poor use of charity resources and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. And Jason, that kind of relates back to what, what you said earlier about the reasonable expectations as a rule of thumb, right? That's right. Yeah. Reasonable expectation is like the way you would test whether or not you're allowed to do legitimate interest. And yeah, yeah. 
So one thing that I'm thinking about as we're talking here is that I, I think a lot of what I'm hearing from both of you is the importance of just being really thoughtful internally at your organization about this. And so to, to some extent, it's less about having the perfect policy relating to data security and privacy and more about just showing the work that you have thought about this and that you do have a policy in place. Is that Does that feel true in your experience? Jason, I'll start with you. Yeah, um, that's uh, kind of something that I, I was I was hoping to share. And uh, when we're talking about um, how does it change research, um, in my mind, um, from the research management side, my interaction with the ICO, the Information Commission Office, really uh, showed me the importance of getting things written down um, in a very detailed and unreasonable way. Um, and they actually said, if you if you have everything written down, but something goes wrong, or there's a there's a there's a like you know a bigger kind of a, a risk event, and they come and examine what you've done, and even if they disagree, if you can show that you've tried to be data considerate but they might disagree with your reasons and why you did X and Y. They said they wouldn't uh, punish that organization. They literally said that um, because they had tried to do their best. So I thought that was really interesting. And then for me, data privacy at that point becomes something a bit like um, kind of a due diligence. It's also protecting our reputation. Um, and when I was reflecting on the SACLA Foundation and, and, and also that hit in the UK, um, and we had a number of organizations that kind of had extremely bad publicity about that, but those that could hold up and say, well, actually, we've got a due diligence process and this is what we followed, uh, come to talk to us. That was it. That's what it seemed to do. It seemed to stop dead any reputational risk because they could say we had a process. We followed the process. It was a rigorous process. Thank you very much. You know, and I think that's the same with data protection. We, it's, it acts as a uh, um, yeah, due diligence uh, a risk mitigator, too. I can say for for sure, I, I agree with you, Jason. It's important to have everything written down and to show your steps. And one of my former colleagues gave me a great piece of advice. She said, you want to do this as a team as well, because uh, when things go wrong, uh, eventually, uh, you want to have people lined up with you and not standing against you. So uh, she was uh, a colleague, actually, that um, invited me when we were doing a database transition at a previous uh, employer to engage in a privacy audit. And part of that, uh, so we engaged with an external vendor that was generally speaking used to working with um, federal government organizations, but this was an organization that you know, had a national scope and it made sense to work with them. But they had some concerns about the role of prospect research when we would be adding information to records or perhaps creating records or managing information within a record. And so I went through a rather rigorous um, uh, set of interviews with them and uh, this external vendor was asking about uh, you know how uh, the researchers myself and my team engaged with information and stored information and I was actually able to draw on the APRA code of ethics as an APRA member and use that as a tool to say look this is a professional association of which my team uh, holds a membership there is a code of ethics this is what we follow so any information that we are managing or gathering or interpreting 
is done through a lens of being professional members of an, uh, an association. And this actually gave us a lot of credence when we were developing our privacy policies. And um, the auditor was actually quite impressed with that. So having access to the upper code of ethics was a really helpful tool. And I encourage anyone listening to look at what tools they have uh, available to them, for example, through their professional associations or within their organization that will help them develop those policies so that they're not coming out of nowhere, they're coming out of, um, you know, existing research. You don't have to invent everything. This is particularly important if you're a, a, a very small organization, you have limited resources, why not use what's available to you to start um, that policy making process? Yeah, that's a really great reminder. None of us are doing this alone, right? And it's something that so many organizations are grappling with. And and luckily, we do have organizations like APRA that have done a lot of thinking around this. And so those are great resources, Catherine, I think, to point people to, because at least it gives a starting point. And, and yeah, I think it amplifies our voices in a way that's really helpful. Thank you for that reminder. Are there tactical steps that you would would suggest to people who are just beginning to start thinking about this at their organizations? Jason, I'll, I'll go to you first, if there are any you would share. So when we're starting data protection uh, in our organizations, yeah. Um, well, I think some kind of quite obvious steps for me would be to a, a point, well, not necessarily obvious, but to appoint a committee, what, what I see is a number of times organisations uh, giving a task to an individual um, and then they've got to go and do everything. Um, but I think if that's you're in that situation, you've got to kind of insist um, that, uh, you know, this isn't a, a reputational issue as we were talking about too. And if things go wrong, you know, it be the trustees or the directors that will feel the heat. So it's like... Um, it, and also the individual can't carry all that risk themselves. It's it's kind of unfair. And so, yeah, I would say you've got to appoint a committee, get a representative number of people on there, uh, you know, some senior individuals as well, um, and start that that process. Um, and it doesn't have to be too rigorous. There's a good number of templates, as you just spoke about, Catherine. There's lots of good resources out there now. Uh, very often it just needs the time to sit down. Um yeah, and that and that's kind of it. It, it does it does require debate, um, quite a lot of debate to make sure that everything's done properly. But yeah, just really reiterating the fact that there's so many good resources out there. And as this is an international one, uh, you know, if organizations, uh, many international organizations in the US or Canada are thinking of doing work with Europe prospects or UK, GDPR does still apply. Um, and that's something to think about in your data protection uh, assessments. Uh, but again, there's really good resources. So I'd point people to the Charlton Institute of Fundraising on this. Um, and there's some very good guidance on GDPR, but also um, on the research on why research, is, uh, prospect research is valuable. Yeah, I think that's really great. It's also the research on why prospect research is valuable is just a nice reminder to all of us why we come to work in the morning too, right? So it's a good way to make our case, but it's also nice just as validation. So I appreciate you sharing that. I'm going to ask the two of you to be a little speculative. Um, I'm curious, where do you think all of this is heading and what do you see for us in the future as researchers in terms of how we think about data and privacy in our work. 
I'm happy to kick us off here. Um, I think that if we are looking ahead, we're going to have to adapt to new developments in public opinion and social movements. I think we'll start noticing there are different expectations among different groups on how their data is managed, how their privacy is respected, and what that actually means. Um, as you know, we are already a globally connected uh, world. So uh, like Jason said, we, we may have people who are um, in our uh, in our wheelhouse or sorry, in our databases, in our prospect lists who are actually um, subject to other regulatory frameworks, which we might not be familiar with. And when we talk about uh, public opinion and social movements, it's important to, uh, to be prepared as much as we can, because unfortunately, many of our policies and procedures and decisions can end up being, um, I mean, as organizations, decisions can be made in response to um, an, uh, an immediate demand or a critical event. And the more we can do to prepare ourselves and accepting that there will be data breaches, we will be subject to ransomware, there will be reputational risks. The more we can do to prepare for all of that, the better off we'll be and being less reactionary because ultimately we want to protect our organizations. We want to make sure that uh, we are uh, maintaining the highest standards of ethics, but we also want to make sure that we are as prepared as possible for the unforeseen. And I can think of a, a recent example in my personal life. Um, I had a, a data security issue with my bank, as well as with two arts organizations to which I subscribe. Uh, the bank was incredibly unsympathetic to any of my needs and just informed me they were shutting down my account for 10 days. Whereas the two arts organizations were obviously very concerned about potential breach of privacy. I had multiple emails and um, I, I, could, I felt very valued as a subscriber and they were worried that this could impact uh, me negatively. So I think, you know, we have to be prepared to be open and talk with our prospects and donors and members about um, what happens and we have to be transparent as much as possible and plan ahead as much as possible for when we have these negative experiences. But I think that prospect researchers are best positioned to help with many of these projects. Although I agree wholeheartedly with Jason that this cannot be put uh, on one person's shoulders. I've seen uh, too many people uh, who already have enough on their plates and are essentially being appointed chief privacy officers uh, in title only with no uh, resources to support them and provide additional training despite the many changes happening um, around them. So uh, I think we have a, a critical role to play. Uh, we have our professional association to back us up, but this is something that has to be a team effort at your organization. Um, and you may have to do a fair amount of advocacy if your organization is not open to that, but they will come to you uh, as soon as there is a critical issue. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's such a great point about the lack of resources that a lot of nonprofits face, as well as the expectations that donors have for nonprofits. I think donors have very high expectations and our resources don't always position us well to meet those expectations, especially compared to like the corporate sector, right? And Catherine, I'm so sorry that that happened to you with all of those data breaches. But I, I think it's a it's a really interesting story and not to like put too rosy a spin on it, but it turned out to kind of be a great stewardship opportunity for those arts organizations, right? And like you 
are coming out of that with positive feelings towards them and less positive feelings towards your bank. So I think that's a good lesson for nonprofits too, is like, of course, no one wants to have a data breach, but also we know that there's a certain amount of inevitability around that these days, right? And so you do the best you can, you protect the best you can, but it's also important to have a plan in place to respond to that. And that if done well, I think most donors are savvy enough. We all understand that our data is out there. People are generally not shocked if there's a breach, but there are expectations around how you handle that breach. So I think that's a really great example that you gave. Well, and they were successful in engaging me. I did renew both my subscriptions. And I look forward to continuing to attend the opera and the symphony. But I think it was uh, a good example, indeed, in my personal life of highlighting the level of scrutiny that nonprofits can face. And, um, you know, that they might not always have the resources to follow up. But doing their best will engage their donors, uh, certainly. And, uh, you know, I think we'll we'll continue to have many changes uh, as we go forward. And um, despite being in a fairly risk-averse industry, if I can say that, it's important for us to, um, you know, work within the frameworks that, that we exist on a day-to-day basis. And that's just going to um, lead to many more interesting challenges and will require a fair amount of creativity to address. Yeah, agreed. Jason, what do you see in the future? So uh, the kind of things that I I thought about this is sometimes I think we can feel like we're losing, um, I guess, control of our own data. You know, in some ways, um, um, with all the special you know adverts that come up these days that seem to listen to your exact thoughts on social media. You know, it's um, it's kind of uh, entering a strange new world with it all and. Uh, I really liked what this person called Clive Humby. So he was a graduate at the University of Sheffield where I worked and he created the first ever loyalty card for this company called Tesco. Um, and he said data is the new oil. And I think over time, I'm hoping that we'll we'll start to see um, ourselves as data subjects as being sat on a commodity, a commodity, in other words, a valuable commodity, which is um, our own data. Um, and I think that um, in the UK, you know, reasonable expectation will uh, will start to grow as well, and we'll see generational issues come through. So going back to social media, um, when we were in exchange with these uh, with the ICO, they said, you know, when you post a Facebook post, you know, you don't expect it to be analysed, do you? And there was a pause in the room, and and many people said, yes, we do expect it to be uh, analysed. Whereas the you like older generation in the room, but didn't expect it to be analysed. So I think we'll start to see some of that that more play out. And as the younger generation comes through, let's call it, I think they will uh, be less concerned about what's happening in their data because they'll be used to it. I know that sounds strange, but I think, um, you know, that empowers the individual and if they would choose to lose, uh, leave platforms because of how they handle their data. So I think, um, you know, it's all going to play out in a in a strange kind of way, really. But ultimately, in our, in our teams, I think we'll start to see a convergence of data protection teams and due diligence teams, data security teams, I almost feel like uh, they could all merge into one, into kind of a new compliance team uh, that's slightly more external to uh, fundraising teams. I, When I when we do due, due, due diligence reports, I've always been kind of like, why are we writing these? You know, I'm sat across the room, the person who's fundraised the gift, you know, and I could have a bias that I don't know. It's that kind of thing. So I almost feel like that will all kind of, Converge into one and maybe slightly 
um, be independent from our offices. It'd be interesting to see if that does happen. I'm sensing a whole new track at a future APRA conference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. Um, well, I hope maybe we can get together again, like in a couple of years and see if these predictions are coming true, see what surprises, you know, what didn't we anticipate? What did we get right? What did we get wrong? But thank you so much to both of you for taking the time today. This has been a really fascinating discussion for me. I hope the two of you have enjoyed it. Um, and I hope all of our listeners have enjoyed it. I know this is a topic that a lot of organizations are thinking about these days. So I think this is, is really timely. Um, thank you, Jason and Catherine, for joining us. Thank you to everyone who has listened. And we hope to see you again soon on another APRA podcast. Thanks so much, Elizabeth. Jason, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show and want to help others find us, please subscribe to and rate us on iTunes. Until next time.